Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. This is your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. This is going to be episode 183, Writing as a Component of the Grieving Process. Now I'll read you a quote here, it's pretty interesting and kind of helps sum up uh, what we're going to be trying to talk about here in the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, from the Harvard Medical School. Writing while grieving boosts the immune system and increases emotional and mental health. Now, it's very important to remember, and I might emphasize this again later in the show, but the title of this show, Writing as a Component of the Grieving Process, means exactly that. The writing process, the writing part of the process is a component, meaning that it's just one piece of of all that you still need to do in order to try to get back to some semblance of normalcy after the death of someone close to you, whether it's a spouse or a child or, you know, whomever, uh, some protege, anyone else that you feel has really had an impact on your life. Meaning that social contact, I know with the, in the day of COVID, that's not such an easy thing, but it doesn't mean you still can't talk to someone, even if it means that you're in the room uh, apart from them six feet. Uh, but the, the contact of friends or relatives, um, maybe even uh, to see somebody on a professional basis, you know, you could do that with telemedicine now with your computer. So even, you know, you can actually completely talk to someone without even having to make contact, you know, in the physical manner or being in the same room with them. But a component. All right. So it's one of three or four things that needs to get done. And I think that it behooves you to realize that writing even though it's helpful as a sort of a self therapy, uh, especially for for grieving, it, it you know it has its limitations. And if you use it solely as a way to get through grieving, and I'm not saying that you can't do that, I'm just saying that you probably shouldn't do that because that's only going to lengthen the time it takes a person to heal. Because remember, a, a death of that sort of magnitude it, it causes an injury in yourself, and and it's something that you need to evaluate and. And learn to to accept and deal with so that a, a healing could take place because there there is injury and I think sometimes uh, when people grieve uh, they uh, they feel so um, not only uh, alone but they they just feel racked by various forms of of guilt where they're like well I, I shouldn't even feel this injury to me because I'm not the one that died and blah 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 well there is and the sooner you recognize that the better. Now, there are a lot of steps out there. I mean, you, you can go onto the internet, there are 12 steps of the grieving, there's 7 steps of this, there's 5 steps of that. I'm not mocking any of that, and I'm not taking any of that lightly, but what I am saying is this. I got three sections of the show I want to talk about. I think, for me, 
through my own grieving process. They were important. So that's why I'll share it with you because this is what I did. All right. It, it doesn't mean that it supersedes anything else you read out there. All right. It really doesn't. I'm not saying this is the only way for you to go. I'm saying it is one of the ways it goes. And some of the things I'm talking about, they're going to be part of the components of all of that anyway. You know, I just happened to emphasize the three most important ones I felt were important to me. So that's the reason why I'm saying that. Okay. But I, I really think that oftentimes, and that's why I shortened it, because, you know, they got too many steps over there. I mean, really. It's not like you have 12 steps, uh, you know, to go through for some kind of alcoholism program or drug addiction. I mean, this is talking about grieving of someone that, that you've lost. So I don't really think you need that many steps. But the ones that are critical are the ones I'm going to talk about in the show, because I think those are the ones that will bring uh, the most uh, clarity to your situation and therefore the most... Uh, rapid time to you know to get back to healing and getting back to your to your life because in the many ways when someone leaves us it takes us out of that normal space we're in and puts us on another place that we're not comfortable with and, and because of that it, it allows us to to react or even overreact to others around us in in, in a poor fashion and not certainly in, in an efficient one so that's what i'm saying that okay all right so we got three um sections here assessment uh confession and acceptance so that's what we're going to talk about over here all right okay all right here we go i'm also going to bring about because i thought it was that uh, it was interesting okay there's been a couple of artists that had to deal with this uh subject of death and they actually incorporated that some into their art and, and they had some interesting things to say about that. So I'm going to bring that about too as well. It was, it was kind of interesting. Alright. Okay. Alright, first thing is uh, assessment. Okay. Well, inside of assessment, there's a few things that you should be doing. One of the first things I, I think that's really necessary, and I don't mean this to sound mechanical or clinical, but the truth of the matter is, is that gathering the facts of the situation really all important and i don't mean the facts of if the person's alive or dead i mean the facts about where they had the most impact on your life by trying to assess that it often helps you put things in, in better perspective because sometimes people who might be more emotionally sensitive than others you know that death seems to, to touch them on all kinds of different levels when maybe all, all they did was interact with them on an academic basis. This person was my tutor for four years in college. Wow, I really hate to lose them and blah, blah, blah. And she's, I'm not saying that's not important, but I'm not really sure how that puts a person in a tailspin of everything in their existence on a tutor they've seen twice a week for four years. I mean, yeah, that's a relationship, but, you know, again, that's why I think assessments are really important. To try to figure out where they fit or at least where they used to fit in our lives so that we can figure out what area we might need to either fill in that void or maybe it's an area that stays a void you know in that situation with that person maybe you don't need a tutor tutor anymore and that's how you move on but it's important to have that so this way we don't over I feel that many times people overreact in, in their emotions about things because they haven't really taken a proper assessment about where that person really stood 
in their lives, where they made the difference, where they had the impact, where they touched the most in you know in our heart and in in our minds. When we assess that, it kind of gives us, I feel, a better way to arrange how we want to approach all of this, and that in itself is a faster way to get back onto the healing process of moving on with your life. Okay. Now, the next thing inside something like that would be uh, weighing the cost. I mean, you got to weigh the cost of, uh, of what they meant to you. I mean, is this somebody that was dishing massive amounts of, you know, relationship advice or, you know, just general wisdom? Uh, again, were they doing something more practical like a tutor helping you become a better student or maybe helping you pass a course you wouldn't have been able to pass otherwise? You know, were they just simply a, a friend that was always there that you could talk to and play around with and have fun and party or whatever? But really, we need to weigh about where they were in our lives. And it's different than gathering the facts because weighing it really tells you about, you know, where that in many ways hurt the most in, in your life from, from their loss. Okay? Next thing is, once we've gathered the facts about what they did and once we've weighed about you know, the cost or, or the quality or the quantity of what they did in our lives, then we need to be able to look forward to adjusting to that new life. Now, when I mean that, I mean that, yes, you're trying to figure out how you need to move forward. It doesn't mean that once you've done all this, yay, I, I figure out how to adjust my life, I'm going to take a step forward and I'm done. That's not what I'm saying. This could take a while. We don't know. Everybody's different. This could take a couple weeks. Hell, it could take a couple of months, it could take a year, who knows. But what I do know is that once you try to figure out gathering the facts and, and where, where, where they wait in your life, then you can start to make some steps forward on how you want to adjust to the new life without them. And that's, that's the hardest thing right there is how do you move forward without somebody you pretty much... And I don't mean this in a negative way, but pretty much have taken for granted. Because, you know, you always expected them to be there, to be around, to answer your text or your call, or stop by the house and they're there, or, you know, all of that. Now they're not. So it, that's important in itself to be able to do that. And that takes a while. How do I go forward without the person? And, and that's the hardest thing to have to even say to yourself, because that's the first thing you're admitting when you're trying to say, I'm moving forward in a new life because this person is not here anymore. It makes it a, a, a lot more a, a, an emotional um, a journey. But that's really what it is. It, it is an emotional journey. Now, there's a couple ways you can go about this. It, it just really depends on the kind of person that you are or maybe even the kind of... Uh, religious beliefs or just philosophical beliefs in general about life are you the person that says i'm stepping forward in a new life without them but in many ways um they're not without them because they uh they are still in my heart in my mind i still have notes and things they taught me and and things they said that i have remembered that i could use or you're the person that says i feel they're going to be around me whenever i i call upon them like a guardian angel you know or are you that person that says i don't believe in any of that sort of stuff and i need to figure out how to start another life without them period but i tell you something even if you're somebody that doesn't believe in philosophy even if you're the atheist type of person 
it's not hard to say that someone's still with you because they're in your memories, they're in your thoughts, they're maybe in your dreams sometimes, they're in your notes. They're, they 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 still have that important place in your heart. So you don't have to be a spiritual, philosophical person to still say that and admit that and realize that in many ways you're still carrying them with you even when you're moving forward. They're just not physically there. So that's a, that's another way to look at it, and it's another way to uh, to understand that. Um, you don't have to make this a, a hallmark moment, and you certainly don't have to make this some some giant spiritual journey. But it is an, a new process going forward, and it's important that you take a, take heed of it because if you don't, you can move forward. Uh, I I feel sometimes people do it prematurely, and and then that that hurts because suddenly you stop in your tracks one day and you realize they're not there. You're phoning somebody that's no longer with us. You don't want to get to do that, okay? All right. The next step in this whole uh, writing as a component of the grieving process is confession. Now, I know that probably sounds a little strange, but what I've found from experience personally, and I've also found from experience from just being around the people that, you know, that have had someone die in their life is... Sometimes a lot of the weight of the death on them, the injury appears, is more to do with the guilt of things that maybe they've done against them that they never asked for forgiveness for, or maybe things that they could have done they feel guilty about. Yeah, I mean, last 12 weeks we could have went out, we could have did this, we could have did that, but I didn't feel like it, I wanted to go this, I wanted to go do that. That kind of guilt, it could be the guilt of, you know, the, the last time you had contact with them, it wasn't exactly the most positive conversation or encounter, and, and now you feel horrible about that, but you can't take it back anymore. So, I found, for a lot of people, and I'm telling you, like 75%, <laughs> you know, of, of, the, of the, the negative feelings they had had to do with uh, uh, some version of guilt. And it's real important that you learn to deal with that because oftentimes a person can learn to move forward without this person on, on all the practical you know, ways, but they still carry that guilt to them, and that's not a good thing. You know, I, la I laugh with my son sometimes. We joke around about stuff. and But I told him this, and he kind of founds the wisdom, and he likes it, even though it's, it's a fun joke. I go, you're going to have some times in your life where you need God to forgive you, and then there's going to be some other times where you need to figure out how to forgive yourself. And that's about, you know, just mistakes that you make in life, and sometimes people don't forgive themselves. They're very hard on themselves. That causes writer's block. That causes just block in general. That causes people to have a... You know, a mild grade of depression that they didn't realize they had because of that sort of thing. And I think that oftentimes for people who are still around after something important that dies in their life, they have that version of that survivor's guilt. You know, I'm still there, they're not. I, I wish I could take this back, but you couldn't. Well, guess what? You can, whether you believe in uh, spirits or not, you could whisper out to the out, out in the backyard at night. You know, Jim, forgive me. Sorry about that, man. I didn't really mean that. And get that done that way. And then learn somehow, some way to forgive yourself. And I don't really think that forgiving yourself is that difficult. And ultimately, what it means is that you really are saying to yourself, 
I know that was wrong, and I'm going to do everything I can to not do it again with somebody else. That's really how you forgive yourself. You acknowledge that it was wrong, and then you work hard to not do it again. That's really what it is. And that's how you reconcile yourself to, to, uh, to your conscience, okay? So it's really important to do that. And one of the good things to do, and you could do it with a therapist or a friend or family member, or you could just do it in private in the dark someplace. You know, um, confess to the air. If you don't believe they're hearing you, that's fine. You know, I'm sorry about this, I'm sorry about that. I wish I could have been a better friend, this and that. I mean, I meet somebody else of, you know, this kind of caliber. I'll make sure I'm doing better and all of that. But that's how you pretty much work on that. Get that out of your system, okay? There's nothing worse, I feel, than carrying these these matters, these items of guilt. They eat into you. They wear parts of you down because people can carry them for years Decades longer. And it's bad. It hurts the kind of person you are. And the more you allow stress to be in your life in that manner, you know, it, it becomes a health problem after a while, physically. You wouldn't believe what stress it does to people. Stress is directly resolved, uh, involved with, with hypertension. Yeah. If you ever want to control hypertension, besides you know losing some weight and eating better, you know you got to figure out ways to reduce stress in your life. This way, you don't have to take, you know, hypertension medication. I'm fortunate that at my age, you know, I, I've been good about all of those things, and I don't have to take hypertension medication. I don't have it, but I know, even though I don't have it. I can see it whenever I get my blood pressure checked that it's there. It's in the background, almost like waiting to jump out. Because I'm older. It's going to be a little higher. It's not high enough to have a medical concern about, and I, that's why I'm okay. But I also know that if I went stupid and not all the stress in my life and do all these other things, it, it would jump up that with everybody else. So it's important to do that. And when it turns out that you have questions about your conduct or you have questions about your presence in their life or maybe you even have questions about just your entire relationship with them you have to start resolving that and you have to do it yourself now because you're not really going to have them to help you so they can forgive you by speaking that out into the atmosphere and then you can start learning to forgive yourself. Um, and if you feel you need to go further, this is something you can talk to, you know, a, a, another friend about. Although, quite frankly, I think it's a bad idea to talk to a friend about, hey, I was a bad friend to this person, but, you know, I'm okay I'm with you. I'm a good friend with you. So it might be a better a time to talk about it with a relative who might, would have a better understanding. You know, it's not the same thing. Or even, or even some sort of a counselor or therapist for a little while. That's not bad either. But, yeah, if you can't do it yourself or if you still need a little bit of, you know, extra uh, clarity or extra push, then don't do it with somebody else like that, okay? But it's real important because a big, a big percentage of this people feeling down and, and, and the, the weight on them has to do with those unresolved issues that we just didn't resolve while, we're, while people are still alive. It's a hard thing. Because 
sometimes people are not ready to get these things resolved with the other person who died. And, and sometimes they've just spent too much time delaying it, too much time excusing it, too much time walking away from it. Well, once someone has died, that's the end of the time. You got no more. So, so the living, if you got any unresolved issues with people, I don't care if they're young or they're old, you might want to try to put that on your schedule to try to get resolved because you just never know what's going to happen. And it's better that when they go into the into the next life, like I believe, um, that that's not something that you have to be worrying about as much. You can focus on other things, okay? All right, so the last uh, part of all of this is acceptance. Now, when I say about acceptance, especially when we're talking about you know the death of a loved one, I mean, I'm not saying that you accepted that this is a good thing. Yeah, my child died. This is great. I don't mean that kind of acceptance. You know, I, what, I, what I do mean is that there is, for a portion of people, especially the, the really, really close deaths where it's literally a child or a spouse, somebody that you've been with, uh, you know, quite some time, um, there's a there's a almost like a denial there, and I don't mean the denial of they're walking around saying my husband's still alive even though I just buried him yesterday. I don't mean that kind of denial, but there's a, a, an emotional denial that they don't want to accept that this has occurred, and when that happens, well, that stops everything. You can't have an assessment when you have you're, you're in emotional denial. You certainly can't confess anything. When you're in a denial, and God knows you can't accept anything if you're denying it. So, it's important to figure out why that's occurring. And it could just be that it takes a period of time for it to settle in, so to speak. And you might need more than just writing. But for some people, what they've done is they've written out a story about that loved one. Or a poem, or a song, or whatever, and to help them go through uh, the uh, the acceptance stage to get there, and you could do that. And, and writing as a therapy in that particular manner is, is pretty darn effective. I'm not saying that it's an end all be all because you might do it and you might get somewhere, but you might not get all you need to be, and you might still need to have a friend or a relative around, or you might still need to speak to somebody professionally. So it might be a component of all three of those things just to be able to get to that. It's the hardest thing of all. Who can accept the death of somebody? It's, the word itself doesn't even sound like it belongs. Hell, I don't want to accept their death. Well, guess what? You have to. Because that's the only way you and your life gets to move forward. And you have to also remember, as hard as this sounds, and I'm sorry to say it, but if you're a parent, I mean, it's a good chance you might have, uh, you know, a child or two beyond them that they still need you. So you still have to be available for them. Same thing with friends and relatives and co-workers and whatever else. You have a lot of other people that are relying on you. They expect contact with you. And they're going to give you a wide berth under the circumstance. But, they, you know, it's not going to be forever. So I've known people that this sort of thing has happened to. And, and you know, they wind up losing Friends and co-workers, jobs, relatives, they just wind up just writing everybody off for a couple of years in, in some nowhere land. That's not a good thing. There's nothing, I feel, nothing worse than losing somebody that close and now you're starting to lose some of your life. Because remember, when time is, is gone, it's gone. You know, you, you take two years to do this, that's two years that's gone. You're not getting those back. 
Okay? This is not a video game. You don't get to reset everything. So the sooner you can do all of this, the better you can move on in your life because there are other people out there that are counting on you. But quite frankly, you yourself are counting on yourself. Who says you should not go back to having some form of happiness? Go back to loving people and have them love you. So it's unfair to yourself more than anything else to, to allow your life you know, to stop in its tracks. Because of death of somebody. And, and I'm not saying that as a lecture. I'm not saying that as a way to admonish you. I'm just saying that to please acknowledge that. That that delay in many ways is harmful to you. And harmful to others around you. If you have other people that are depending on you on a more immediate basis. Like a, a spouse or, or other children. Well then you know, you're, you're causing damage in other areas that you didn't realize. So it's real important to take that in, into account. Okay? Who can accept any of this? Nobody can in, in the normal way. So I, I, I completely get that. Now, I, I said I had a couple of artists I, I, that dealt with death that I thought was really interesting. Okay? Now, the first one is Edward Munch. You remember him probably from the doing the scream um, painting. You know, the one with that weird alien-looking dude screaming on a bridge. Uh, I think it's the painting that's been stolen the most on the on the history of the planet. I mean, I'm serious. It's like if you ever get to see an exhibit, hurry up and see it because the next day it could be stolen. I mean, that's how many times it's been stolen. I think it's worth like three hundred million dollars or something. It's incredible. Now, Edward Munch was a difficult fellow. He had all kinds of serious depression and psychological problems. Okay, suicide attempts, seeing hallucinations. You know, screaming and shouting at people, being difficult to understand. I mean, literally not taking a shower for like a month. I mean, he just had all kinds of problems. All right? But the human side of us, even through all of that, is still there. It's still active. Okay? He, he painted a painting called Death in the Sick Room. That's the name of it, Death in the Sick Room. It was about... Six people in this this room that people go to to uh, sort of contemplate their thoughts in a funeral home before they have to see the body. And it was uh, uh, on the death of his beloved sister Sophie. And he noticed, and I, I still find it incredible, that he had the depth of sensitivity to realize that the six people in the room None of them had any eye contact with each other. They were all lost in grief. And that's what happens with people when they don't figure out a way to, to accept the, the loss. Is that they become lost in the loss. You know, in that grief. So he understood that. How that's horrible and, and quite frankly uh, unhealthy. If anything, ideally in, in, in a sick room people should be comforting each other. Because that's actually a good thing. But in this case, it was not. But he understood that. He saw that. And he wrote, he painted that. It makes it that much more of a sadder uh, painting, in my view. Pablo Picasso. Here's a guy that's emotionally and psychologically abusing women. Okay? Using sex almost like a, a way uh, you could drop a pill before you have to go to your next painting. Okay? Uh, all kinds of strange political uh, uh, opinions, 
First he's a communist, then he's a socialist, then he's anti-fascist, then, then he's Spanish, then he's French. I mean, he's everything. <laughs> One of the greatest painters of the 20th century, okay? He did a painting called Still Life with Skull, Leek, and Pitcher. Leek is a type of an onion, okay? And Pitcher. And incredibly enough, it's a sensitive philosophical painting on how a person learns to fit death into their daily existence. I don't like to use a lot of these quaint, cute phrases about death as part of life and this and that. And, you know, it sounds like one of those Indian characters, uh, you know, in a bad Showtime movie or something. I, I don't like when people use a lot of that stuff because it really doesn't answer your questions. It, it doesn't really do, I mean, why am I so depressed over the death of my loved one? Well, you know, man, like, uh, death is part of life. I mean, again. You know, it's one of those hippie things. Go go smoke some pot or something then. But you're not helping anybody with those stupid friggin' phrases. They're really not. But Pablo Picasso, a strange, complicated man, understood that we needed to learn how to fit death in our daily existence. Okay? And in some cases, the, the way to fit the death was, and, and part of the, the, the solution, I, I guess, to this particular painting was is that uh, a, a way for you to fit death and, and that this has happened and that, that this is accepted in your own life was that you were cooking a meal that was a, a, one of the favorite meals of someone who died. I don't mean you're doing it every day, but you did it because that's how you remembered them in your life. Okay? If you know anything about Mexico, they have the Day of the Dead, which I always thought was a very logical and practical holiday where they don't always celebrate just the birthday, they also celebrate the death day. When they died. And then you can talk about them. And relive things and stuff like that. I think it's great. Uh, but this is a way in that painting to do so. You make a meal that befits when they were around. And things they would have liked. Uh, some people can can wear. Like a, a piece of jewelry or a charm. Maybe every day. Or certain times of the month or the year. Or whatever. Or whenever they go to church or whatever. Again to remind them of that person. To honor that person's memory. You know. Um, you might wear something special and different uh, when you get uh, married and your father couldn't walk you down the aisle because he died before then. So those are the sort of things. That's how you fit death into your daily existence. And I think it's great because it makes a lot of sense. And again, it is definitely, in my opinion, a type of therapy as well. Because as long as you can honor them, as long as you can remember them, as long as the things that they taught you are still an important part of your life, in a way, it, it feels that they haven't really left you. They might have left the world, but they haven't left you. And that's 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 the lesson in that, I think. Okay, uh, Van Gogh huh, uh, cuts his ear off uh, because the girl spawns him, okay? Um... Again, another guy that don't take a bath but once a year or something, lives in his own excrement or vomit, drinking all over the place, using all kinds of drugs that he could possibly use, screaming at people, getting in fights, getting arrested. Half the times they're like, um, I don't even want to arrest you anymore because you haven't taken a bath, you're a genius Van Gogh, and you're a pain in the ass. I'm just going to bring you to your house and drop you off and you can go live in your vomit there. That's how much the police were like bored with this guy. But that's how whacked out he was. Alright? But what does he do? He writes, he does a, a, a painting. It's 
It's called Sorrowing Old Man at Eternity's Gate. Okay? And it's the sight of an old man with his hands to his eyes in complete grief. It's just very moving because it lets you think about life and death and maybe even a higher power. Because it feels very alone but very spiritual, very solemn. And this is something that he had seen and, and he did a painting on it. Again, that human part of us that's still there regardless of all the bad things we might be going through. Whether it's our health or our mind or our spirit or anything can still be there. They can still reach out to you and do something. And in many ways, Van Gogh, a man who needed help himself when he was alive, let alone dead, uh, can still teach us something about humanity and being humane and being compassionate and reflecting upon you know, life and death and maybe even if there is a higher power. Because in many ways in that painting, and I can't tell you if this is what he was thinking, but it seemed to me that he was also saying to us that, you know, there is, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, some type of spiritual dimension of death. That it brings us to a place that we not normally would be. To help remind us about things that could be out there. Whether it's uh, learning to not be afraid of the un unknown or whether it's simply just to respect the unknown or maybe it's just a way for us to learn to respect ourselves better. You know how I many people have known that the death of somebody close to them sort of helped reform them where they acted better. They were more humane. They seemed to be a, a person that had uh, more more character. They lived more in the moment. And that's really, I think, in the end, how we want to take the most important lessons about death in our lives is that it, it teaches us to live more in the moment, to not take things for granted, you know? To not say, you know, I, I, I saw Grandma last week. You know, I, I can go see her another, another couple weeks later. You know, Grandma's 97. Maybe you should see her once a week or maybe longer. Maybe you should see her more. You don't know when she's called to her her reward, and you don't know when there's something you should, could be should have sharing with her. Now you're not going to have that chance. So we shouldn't take things for granted at all, because we don't know when we're going to lose those. You know they say, uh, you know, you don't know what you're missing until you lose something. And really, what they're saying is about a physical object. Or maybe even the love and relationship of somebody. It, it doesn't always necessarily mean death. But you can still use it that way. And I think in many ways it has its deepest meaning in death. That we don't know what we're missing until it's gone. Well, maybe we shouldn't have so many questions when somebody's dead. If we learn to do the right thing. If we learn to resolve the things that should have been resolved before they die. If we learn to make sure that we're doing everything we can to be with them. For them to know that we love them, that we care about them, that we're thinking about them. And to make sure that we're doing whatever we can to share our lives with them. And not take things for granted. You know? And when you're 97, you're not taking any breath for granted. So, why should you? Alright, folks. Until next time, God bless. This is Strength to Be Human, episode 183. Writing as a component of the grieving process. Good night.
thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.